Hi, I am Nicole J. Georges. I am a queer, feminist, vegan cartoonist, teacher, and advice columnist living in Portland, Oregon, with my half-blind chihuahua, Ponyo Georges. <coughs> Welcome to our podcast, Sagittarian Matters. Sagittarian Matters. Sagittarian Matters. What's the On today's episode of Sagittarian Matters, I review bargain basement popcorn balls with Morgan Grenstein Helvey. Then, cartoonist Justin Hall discusses queer comics history, teaching, and why we should all draw our own erotic stories. Stay tuned. Morgan Grenstein Helvey is a friend of mine who is also in the bitch crew, meaning that we have a matching tattoo. She is a former vegan baker. She used to have a bakery called Dovetail. She has facial tattoos that most people don't notice that are stick and poke, self-done lines above her eyebrows, for which I am constantly trying to get her to get on SSI, which is the money the government gives you for being mentally ill she never does um she just has a lot of energy and enthusiasm she works at the grocery store so she gets a lot of weird food that's a little bit expired which was the basis for our taste tests hi i'm nicole i'm here with morgan hello i'm morgan i'm here with nicole i was just telling morgan um justin hall the editor of No Straight Lines, the queer comics anthology. Mm-hmm. He was in town and we took a photo together and he tweeted it. And he has a, another life in his past as a. <laughs> so our photograph of him and I at Reading Frenzy got so many retweets by people whose only profile picture is a dick, <laughs> like a hard dick. And then I was looking at one of the profiles and I saw like, my picture in Reading Frenzy just sandwiched in between two giant <laughs> flaccid cocks. It is fun. We have, he really has a different reach. You finally have arrived. Yeah, I've arrived. Congrats, George's. Well, that's nice. Come on, Panyu. Okay, today we are together and we are going to review popcorn balls. So many popcorn balls. Um, I need to put this down here. It's also got a Halloween cat with a witch hat and a broom. It's riding on a broom. Okay, I should, I should say it's November. This is a Halloween <laughs> item that I got at Rite Aid, the drugstore. Mm. Guess how much? George, just tell me how much. 19 cents. The value <laughs> is unbeatable. So I got I got a lot of them because they were what? they were 19 cents each, and I thought I could take them all to my studio. Um, <laughs> For when the earthquake hits, you're just going <laughs> to survive on these Halloween-themed popcorn bowls. Now let's look at the ingredients first. Okay. The ingredients are a little troubling. <laughs> Number one ingredient in the popcorn ball. So the first ingredient is the thing that there's the most of. Mm-hmm. First ingredient, sugar. <laughs> Don't worry, there's only four more ingredients. Sh- more sugar than popcorn in the popcorn yeah, ball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Number two, popcorn. <laughs> Dextrose. Mm, yeah. Soy. Sweetener. Oh, sorry, salt. Soy lecithin. Mm-hmm. What is dextrose? The sweetener is some variety. Okay, so we crack it open. It's okay. beautiful. It is actually beautiful. It's shining. Full glisten. We'll include a photo with this. <laughs> Dang, we should have saved the package. Okay. Oh, don't worry, I have more. 
Nary a crumb fell off. Tanya, get out of here. Does it smell rancid? Mm. Or does it smell nutty? Maybe some of both. I can't decide. <laughs> Is that the dextrose? Okay, I'm going to take if a... it smells like makeup, that's usually my, my uh, signal that it's rancid. <laughs> it doesn't smell like makeup. Like no foundation. Like in the outside. <laughs> Gross. It's good. It's good. It's uh, good. Okay. Mmm. <laughs> <laughs> is it covering in lipstick? My God, this is so stale. This is this is not crunchy at all. That was misleading. That's not my. Incredibly stale. Like so stale, it's almost oh. it's difficult. It's like you know those like um, eco-friendly packing <laughs> peanuts that are edible. And you're like, look, it's not going to kill me if I eat it. This is exactly the same texture <laughs> and and flavor. It might be the same thing. Plus sugar. You know what it's like? It's kind of like the um, like in honeycombs or whatever, or honeygrams. What is that sugar <clears throat> cereal? It's like that cereal, and it has like the stale little honey, honey bits. <laughs> I don't know. Not honeygrams. It's like the, there's a teddy bear. Anyway, it tastes like that. Okay, flavor fine. Flavor is fun. Totally fine. The sugar, the dextrose. Mm -mm, I love it. <laughs> Not rancid. The only thing that tells me it's age and maturity Ooh. is the texture. Is the Halloween graphic on the package? <laughs> <laughs> well, part of me wonders. Mm. Oh, they don't expire till June of 2016. That's a lie. <laughs> that's, a, that's a lot you're putting it back <laughs> well this is a deal i would eat this really i would eat the whole thing i would pay 19 cents for it <laughs> yeah i still think it's a really good value um <laughs> i don't know if i would recommend it <laughs> like if you were eating one i was like oh can i have one of those i'd be like uh, warning <laughs> this is like a morgan warning on this it's kind of weird good enough for me but not mm -hmm. for my guess <laughs> um yeah 19 cents 19 cents? It's worth it. All right. Mm -hmm. I kind of, I have, Thanks, I have several other balls of this and I think mm -hmm. it's going to be a punishment Ooh. food. Mm -hmm. I think they quickly turn the corner from incredible savings to punishment food <laughs> when like they sit around and then I imagine the texture and I'm so hungry and it's all I have. And You're I'm like, like oh. I ate three popcorn balls for dinner. I don't know. I feel so bad. All right. That's this. I'm going to, I'm going to put the popcorn, the popcorn challenge to sleep. Any other popcorn? No, honestly, full review. It was kind of a pleasant surprise. <laughs> There you go. Okay, so hit up your local Rite Aid around Halloween time. In. For yeah, purple Halloween popcorn balls. Made by Rocky Mountain Popcorn. <laughs>Justin, will you please tell my podcast listeners about your work? Sure. I, um, I've been making comics for maybe 15 years, and I've been teaching them for about five, um, and all different kinds of comics. So I, I started <clears throat> with um, 
uh, uh, sacred text, which was kind of a repurposing of the of the the story of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, got a Zarek grant for that, uh, and then I did a series called True Travel Tales, and I would travel. Uh, internationally, kind of around, and uh, live out of my backpack, and then make stories out of, out of those travel adventures, and also I would interview people about their true travel adventures. Um, and then I did a character called Glamazonia, and it was kind of camp humor, uh, and uh, parody stuff, and then um, also a series called Hard to Swallow, which was uh, an erotic comic series, a gay porn series that I did with Dave Davenport, who's a tattoo artist down in Los Angeles. He did half the book and I did half the book. Um, and now I'm working on a big graphic novel. Um, I've done a lot of kind of memoir stuff and shorter pieces for anthologies. Um, uh, so my kind of storytelling range goes from camp humor, erotica, to gritty memoir, to kind of fantastical stuff. It's kind of all over the map, to be honest. And you did No Straight Lines. Right. So I edited No Straight Lines, Four Decades of Queer Comics, which is a big kind of comprehensive history of LGBTQ comics. Um, and that was, that took about three years. I um, did that for Fantagraphics. Um, Why did you do that? Um, you know, it was, I, uh, it, I had, I, had, I had curated a show, a museum show at the San Francisco Cartoon Art Museum in 2006, and that was the first uh, queer comic show. I'd actually pitched it to the, to the museum, and they they bit, and it was the first museum show of the of the work of that kind of work. Um, and we wanted to do a um, a catalog book from the show, and it never happened. Like the funding fell through, so it was kind of kicking around in my brain for a little while. I worked briefly with a with an agent, and she gave uh, which. I, did not pan out, but she gave me the kind of triggered the idea. Also, um, this book needs to be made, and you should do it. Um, and it was at that point I was working with Prism Comics, which is a nonprofit a advocacy group supporting LGBTQ comics, and um, I was their talent relations guy. So um, I've been you know meeting queer cartoonists my entire life, and I was running a queer cartoonist panel at, at the Alternative Press Expo for a dozen years. Um, so you know, I uh, there not to be. Uh, there only a few people could actually probably pull this book off, and I was one of a handful, basically. Mm -hmm. um, and the book needed to be made. It was it was time. It was like yeah. this moment when queer comics were really kind of coming into, into the dovetailing back into the mainstream of, of alternative comics culture. Uh, for a long time, queer comics existed in their own media ghetto. You know, they were primarily yeah. published by queer publishers, um, queer newspapers, and queer bookstores, and didn't weren't actually in the comic book stores and weren't in the comic book con conventions, and you know, the last 15 years, we've really kind of put, you know, struggled to kind of make queer comics be part of the comics world uh, and not be isolated in their own kind of parallel universe. Um, and that was finally really, that's finally happening now. So it was the right moment now to, to do this book because the danger is that um, all of this back material, you know, all the stuff that was made for the queer press um, was going to get lost. Especially the literary stuff, oddly enough. The, the, especially the, the gay male erotic material was better archived. So mm -hmm. Center of Sex and Culture, the Tom of Finland Foundation, places like that had been doing a good job in archiving that material. But the queer, what I would call literary queer comics, um, weren't particularly well archived. And now that the queer uh, newspapers and publishers and bookstores are kind of all dying out, uh, the queer media ghetto is kind of dissolving. Um, the danger was that all that backlog of material was just going to get lost and people would forget about it. And I didn't want that to happen. So, you know, Diane DeMoss's Hotted Paisan, Homicidal Lesbian Terrorist, to Eric Orner's, you know, mostly unfabulous social life of Ethan Green, to like the early contributions in, you know, women's comics and gay comics by the underground cartoonists to the dyke punk scenes, trans web comics, all this kind of stuff that was 
kind of this backlog of material that was really in danger of being lost. So, mm-hmm. and, and it, that's if the book felt like it needed to be made at that moment. I'm so glad that you made it. Thank you. Thank you. Well, so we were talking about, you were talking about a, a, a canon, mm-hmm. like making a comics mm-hmm. canon. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I was at the Center for Cartoon Studies and I took a comics history class and it was from the lens, it was through the lens of somebody who had grown up, you know, a straight white guy in, on the East Coast who mm-hmm. was obsessed with horror comics yeah. and old comics. Yeah. And so the focus of the class was, you know, a lot of horror comics, a lot of superhero comics. Mm-hmm. And I think students that go to CCA, they take your class, get a totally different perspective mm-hmm. on comics history. I think it's really interesting. I think both classes are very valuable, but I, yeah. we were talking about there's no such thing as a comics textbook, yeah. really. Which is fascinating. I mean, it's it's such, still so new to academia, and comics programs in particular are so new um, that they're they're really no textbooks. I mean, there's, you know, Jessica Abel and Matt Madden did, you know, textbooks in creating a, a kind of the creation of, you know, comics workshop classes, right? Um, but um, but no one's done a comics history textbook. Uh, and that's a, it's, that's fascinating, right? I mean, any, you know, painting program or sculpture program or theater program or film program, there's a number of different textbooks that, that a, um, an academic can use to, to develop a class around, but there's nothing like that for comics. So you really have to kind of create the thing out of your own knowledge mm-hmm. and your own personal passions, um, but also try to be as inclusive as possible. Like, yeah. so I constantly struggle, um, with this, um, you know, cause I'm teaching the history and cultural context class at CCA of comics. And, um, you know, obviously I know a lot about queer comics, so I definitely do a, a segment on that. And I do a segment on the, uh, feminist and, uh, uh, feminist underground comics as well, as well as the standard underground comics. Um, and, but I also, you know, covered the history of superheroes, um, and the EC horror stuff and all that kind of stuff. Um, there's also obviously all the manga material and mm-hmm. the Bendesine from, from Europe, uh, the Franco-Belgian comics, there's a tremendous amount of material and you have to triage this. You have to prioritize what, what is the canon? Like who, you know, who are these students going to come out of this program knowing about, um, and why? Uh, and it's a really, and, and, you know, you oftentimes think of a canon and certain people will be left out of the canon, uh, not because of their talent, but because of who they are, because of identity mm-hmm. politics, right? So, so um, I was going to make sure that my students come out of this program knowing who Alison Bechdel and Howard Cruz are, because they're two of the greatest cartoonists in the world. They're also a queer cartoonist and yeah. would would have been left out of the canon by a lot of people. Yeah, I I feel like students don't understand that Allison was making comics in relative obscurity yeah. for like 25 years yeah. before Fun Home came yeah. out. Yeah, I think that's valuable to think about. Yeah, and I and I tell them like the first time I met her was in 2003, I think it was, and it was the first queer cartoonist panel that I ran at, at Alternative Press Expo. She had been making Dykes to Watch Out for for 20 years at that point, and she had never been to a comic book convention. That was her first comic book convention. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Yes. So it was the first, it was the first year that Prism came to a comic, to Alternative Press Expo. First time we had a queer cartoon, a queer comics panel at all at one of those conventions. And the first time that Alison Bechdel showed up at a comics convention. So you can see how the queer comics world was so completely isolated and separate from the rest of the comics community. Um, And that was the beginning of the kind of moving them together. 
Um, but yeah, people don't realize that, you know, Alison Bechdel didn't, uh, you know, arrive out of nowhere with Fun Home in 2006. She had been making comics since 1983. She had been following these characters for so mm-hmm, long. Mm-hmm. Developing her skills. Over yeah. many, many storylines mm-hmm. before she took yeah. it to something that she really valued. Yeah, and she she was already one of the kind of world's great cartoonists by that point. And, but she was doing it in the obscurity of this queer media ghetto. Do you um, think that people segregate themselves or like why because for me I know that I actually had to go out of my way to have a moment of being like I need to reckon with the straight dudes of comics mm-hmm, like I need mm-hmm, to make amends mm-hmm. with comics at large mm-hmm. because that will help my career and there's things for me there right not just money comics actually haha there's never money but <laughs> but I mean like readers and people that I have something in common with who we do the same craft so right. I need to like get out of my comfort zone of like a queer separatist feminist space mm-hmm, and be mm-hmm. like okay, nerd man, like, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. let's talk. Yeah, and I I struggle with that constantly. I'm sure you do as well. There's that kind of constant, kind of endless question that gets... you know, uh, and kind of endlessly, you know, reiterated, reiterated about, you know, are are you a, a cartoonist or are you a woman cartoonist? Are you a cartoonist or are you a queer cartoonist? Um, and you know, there's no kind of adequate answer to that. Like, mm-hmm. um, but there is this frustration. I definitely get at times. A, I wish that you know the the integration, which is happening now, but you know that it had been faster and that it was you know, um, because I definitely, you know. Get sometimes frustrated that my work or other queer cartoonists kind of aren't part of the the canon of, of the of yeah. the rest of the of the comics world uh, the way that they should be. You know, Eric Orner should be, you know, is is as good as any of the kind of you know straight white dudes that you can kind of think of. But because his work has always been published in, in gay newspapers, most of them don't know about his work, right? Yeah. And that's that's not a good thing, right? Yeah. Um. So, yeah, I, I do feel like there should, you know, uh, that I need to kind of reconcile. And I also wonder about ghettoizing myself. Like, I did True Travel Tales for many years, um, and that was a kind of a broader uh, underground comic that had some queer content in it, but was not a queer comic. And and I definitely had a different readership for that. But then I moved from that to doing Hard to Swallow, which was gay erotica, mm-hmm. and <laughs> my fan base completely went, whoop, you know, yeah. <laughs> flipped over. Um, you know, with you know, a couple of people who follow, followed me, but basically, you know, from one to the other, but basically I, I built a new fan base. Is it is it weird to want recognition from the establishment? Because, you know, like, no. Allison had, like, so many fans, yeah. and just none of them were comics people. Yeah. yeah. Or the kind of people that we would just generalize as comics people. Right. And, and she she's really unusual because, I mean, she's finally getting, you know, recognition within the, the broader comics community. But she, you know, first had recognition among queer communities. Um, uh, and not just comics people, but just, you know, kind of broad, you know, kind of queer cultural communities. Um, for establishing this voice for, for queer culture. Um and but also then she became uh, known within the literary world because Fun Home was first embraced uh, in 2006 when it came out. Um, uh, Time Magazine named it the best book of the year. Yeah. It was embraced by the literary community. Uh, I remember I was on the uh, I was one of the committee to on the Ignatz Awards, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and Fun Home wasn't nominated. It wasn't sent in. Houghton Mifflin didn't send it in to the Ignatz because they didn't send mine either. Yeah, oh, right. So well, they but, don't know about it. They don't. Because Ignat says it's for small press. Yeah. So when I sent it to my editor, she's like, I don't think that your book qualifies because we're not a small press. Oh, really? And I was like, oh. And then I saw that you're some other big press book was yeah, in it. Yeah, and yeah, I was yeah. like, God damn it. Because right. anyway. I, I, I nominated it. I forced it to be nominated, basically. I just yeah. I put it on the top of my list, which forced it to be nominated. But then it didn't win. 
which is what? crazy. <laughs> right? It's insane that it didn't win because no offense to who won, but come on. I know. Right? I don't even remember who won, but whoever won, it's for sure was not as good as Fun Home. I mean, no offense. It's like right? Michael DeFord. <laughs> yeah, right, right, exactly. No offense. Right? No offense. But, <laughs> but uh, you know, but the reason was that none of the cartoonists at, at the at the show had read the book. Well, then after. After like the New Yorker, whoever mm-hmm. was like Alison Bechdel's cool cartoonist, were like, oh yeah, yeah, right. right. <laughs> we, She's one we, of us now. She we totally know yeah. her. We've known her for a long yeah, time. Yeah. Like, really? <laughs> but anyway, so to you, mm-hmm. your graphic novel that you're writing, mm-hmm. are you hoping that that is a crossover kind of thing? You or? know, it's it's really interesting. Like, I, and again, struggling with this same question. Um, I just wrote a script for um, someone else to illustrate for Tana Ford, who's who's a lesbian cartoonist, but also, like, she's also done stuff for Marvel, and she's incredibly talented. So I just wrote a piece, and it's got queer content in it. One of the uh, main characters is a trans guy. Um, But, um... But it's not... I wouldn't call it a queer comic. It's it's a crime drama set in the pot industry in Northern California. And it's... We're really kind of pitching it as, like, an, you know, image or vertigo book. So I'm hoping that should... um, We'll be working on that in the next year. Um... So that was my attempt to do a kind of crossover thing using my narrative voice uh, and that of my collaborators um, and but kind of addressing a kind of broader audience that would you know be interested in different kinds of things. Um, but I'm, my graphic novel that I'm working on that's all me that I'm writing and illustrating yeah. and lettering and uh, everything um, is much more personal and it actually goes kind of deep queer, I guess mm-hmm. I would say. Because I feel like what's happened now with this, as culturally we're kind of accepting queerness, you know, very it's been this kind of dramatic shift that I I don't think any of us could have imagined 10 years ago, you know. Isn't it great that you're on trend? I know. We're trending. We're kind of hot now, right? It's kind of crazy. (laughs) Um, But it's um, this very, you know, interesting kind of cultural shift. But what's happened is that uh, kind of as queerness is being more accepted, the kind of... I've also noticed this disconnect about what my reality is as a gay man is very different from the perception of even allies kind of who are not gay or not queer. So um, that's interesting. So I feel like there's a second coming out process that needs to happen. You mean because you live like a queer life than assimilationist kind of yeah, homosexual? Because I think what, you know, my mom, for example, she read the manuscript of, my, she's an editor, right? Yeah. So I had oh, her, yeah, it was awesome. And, uh, and she's incredibly cool awesome woman, total ally. She's made it with the ladies before as well. Oh. <laughs> yes, right. uh, yeah. So I grew up with like, you know, kind of lesbian role models around, uh, not gay men, but lesbian role models around me. Um, but she, she read my manuscript and, um, of the script. And, uh, she said, look, this really troubles me because, you know, queer people have been making so, so many strides, gay men in particular, have been making so many strides, uh, towards acceptance by the, by the mainstream. And your book is basically showing a gay male culture that is in fact scary. Uh, that is in fact, uh, challenging in all the ways that, that we're kind of not supposed to, you know, that we're kind of thinking that, uh, not supposed to think in those ways anymore. So for example, you know, I'm showing a, a gay male culture that is quite uh, promiscuous that has you know daddy boy relationships that are kind of restructuring relationships in different ways. Yeah. So I'm not saying oh gay gay relationships are in fact exactly the same as straight relationships. I'm saying that they're actually different. Yeah. Um, and that's um, because this is what I see around me in San Francisco. I mean, I, I can't have... wait to read that book. By the way, thank you. <laughs> well, I... sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. So I don't want to ruin your point. No, no. But so. Um, and I, I, one of the things I have to say is I have to, uh, the caveat here is I have to be careful about, um, 
generalizing gay culture from my experience because um, I live in San Francisco, you know, urban gay, you know, gay center that's very kind of extreme and avant-garde in a lot of ways. Um, and I, you know, I, I think that's not, you know, it's not gay reality in most of even the United States. So, yeah. so, you know, in San Francisco, for example, it's very, you know, I, I'll meet someone and they'll introduce me to their, to their husband, to their daddy, to the, and to their pop. You know, yeah. and there are three different guys and they're all part of a family structure. Yeah. And, and I'm like, and it does, I, you don't bat an eye in San Francisco, yeah. but that's, you know, I know that's not true of all gay culture. But yeah, you so. think, but it's not to you if people tokenize you as like the voice of all gay people. Right. Right. And that, and that's a, that, that would be a problem. But I wanted to write something with this graphic novel that's very specific to my experience as a gay man in San Francisco, what I see my, my part of gay culture is. I feel like there's room for all of our perspectives. It, it's, but I, I do wonder about, you know, talking about like an audience, like, I don't know who's going to, I don't know who's going to want to read this. Well, you know? I want to read it. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Thank so you. we were just both at the Queers and Comics Conference. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes. All of those people. I feel yeah, they're like, going to want to read it. I kind of wonder what your crossover appeal now is that you've done mm -hmm. no straight lines. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, and you've done all of it. So you've done things that are more secular mm -hmm. and things that are more gay specific, <laughs> yeah. you know, and then you've done things about gay people that straight people can consume and be like, mm -hmm. we know about gay things mm -hmm. now. Yeah, so right. now I wonder if this book can blend all of those audiences. I, I think this book is going to, is going to push it farther. And I think it could, because it's so specific to uh, queer experiences that are not uh, part of the assimilationist canon or, you know, so a paradigm. So, um, I, I think it's going to freak some people out. Maybe like my yeah. mom was freaked out by it. She was like, I, <laughs> she was like, I want, you know, gay people are being accepted now. And now you're just going to scare people again about them because like, you're, or you're showing a human. I, it's the only way I can do it. Like, I, I don't want to do the nice gay story about the nice gay relationships. Well, who when, else would should write it? Yeah. And, and people are in my community are, de are dealing with meth addiction and, and how to, you know, consume and create porn and how to have relationships, intergenerational relationships and all these kind of things that, that are absolutely in play. I see around me all the time. I want to write about those things. I don't yeah. want to pretend they don't exist just to kind of satisfy a, an assimilationist agenda. Yeah. I just feel like there's room for every story. You have an incredible story. It is totally weird and specific because of where <laughs> you live, but the only thing about it that, I mean, it's just like the, I, I mean, just people putting a value judgment on sex mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is the only thing that makes it seem at all like, whoa. Yeah. Well, it is, um, you know, because I actually worked in the porn industry for uh, a few years and I wanted to tell a story also about the porn industry that was not erotica. Yeah. You know, that actually talks about it as an industry and, uh, yeah. and what it's like to be on a porn set when, uh, as, as someone who's working there. So, so it's, it's, you know, as, as a cartoonist, it's a very interesting challenge because I'm doing the story about porn, but I don't want it to be porn itself. I don't right. want it to be erotica or titillating necessarily. So I'm trying, you know, I pull the camera back and I'm showing the whole porn set. So you see all the guys with the lights and the cameras and the crew kind of like trying to get the right shot underneath, yeah. the, you know, get the yeah. lights underneath the balls as the, you yeah. know, as the fucking scene is happening <laughs> and not just showing the fucking scene. Right. Yeah. So, um, uh, but I also do want to show Dick, you know, and yeah. like, but without it being erotica, I'm also doing a, a ghost story without it being a horror story. So yeah. I'm, you know, trying to kind of play with the difference between genre and, and, um, uh, the, the subjects of the, of the, of the material. I just feel like we're so lucky to have your voice because it is so specific and it is of a certain time. And I'm so, I mean, imagine if this, this, this story and this experience went to like, nobody recorded it. 
Like it yeah. went to waste. Like I'm just feel yeah. so glad that you were able to take pen and paper and that you can make this happen. Thank you. I mean, Welcome. it hasn't. Well, I'm working on it now. Well, not that <laughs> well, I mean, I just I don't even live in San Francisco, mm. and I'm not a gay guy. Mm-hmm. But I'm a lesbian living in Portland, and everything that you said, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah From yeah. San Francisco, yeah, sure, or from sure, friends, or sure. like have you know. And, and there is this weird thing, uh, and, and I'm sure you've run into this phenomenon with your own work, like where the more oddly enough, the more specific you get about it, your experience, the more universal the message, the, yes. the audience and the message becomes. Which is, yes, I still don't understand why that happens or what's going on with that, but. Yeah. But as soon as you try to write for a more universal experience, oftentimes you lose it. But the more specific it is, the more people it tr- it, it it triggers responses in broader audiences. And I I still don't understand why why that works. It just I mean I can't tell you how many people have written me and say, you know I I loved calling Dr. Laura. My experience could not be more different than your own. Yeah, right. But. You know, the emotional parts yeah. resonated with me. Yeah. And there's something about by creating the, the very specific details about your authentic experience that that makes it seem true, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that that realism and that authenticity really, um, uh, you know, can trigger kind of responses, you know, real responses in, in the viewer. Yeah. Um, you know, and the more universal you try to make it, the, the more diluted it becomes and more yeah. flat. Yeah. 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 So. I, I, I mean, I feel like it's like a combination of being able to be vulnerable mm-hmm. in different places on the page mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. adding very specific details like that. Yeah. Yeah. And now when I, re- I mean, not to be my own whatever, but when I look at the Dr. Laura book now, I'm like, mm. oh, I added that weird thing. <laughs> the fuck? Like who, you know, like, I mean, just like, like I raised chickens in Portland. I was a karaoke mm-hmm. jockey. I had mm-hmm. my sign taped to the front of my podium. that's like, these are the songs I won't play. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Anyway, but but all those all those things are, are are details that provide this kind of richness to the narrative. And if you strip those all away, thinking that they're too specific about your experience, and so therefore they're not going to resonate with an audience, you would actually lose uh, like so much of the richness of the book. Yeah, um, I think that's why it's always important to have reader like your readers or editor friends that read mm-hmm. it to choose them wisely and not choose Debbie Downer kind of people because <laughs> there's always going to be like Eeyore yeah, sort of right, people that yeah, are like yeah. I don't know or like who's yeah, going to get this yeah, or right. whatever whatever I like to find people that are also teachers in some way oh. so they know how to constructively tell you something yeah, right. and also people that want the best for my story mm-hmm. but then I think about the idea of like the cartoonist just being shut away you know just <laughs> shut away like you're Chris yeah, Ware like you're right. like get out of my tower I'm yeah. working on my comics but I, I think that model of the cartoonist is also uh, dying out a bit um, bec- or, or shifting a little bit rather because uh, you can still be a misanthrope and a cartoonist but it's harder now in the sense that you know um you're expected to get out there at least with social media at the very least, but yeah. usually with conventions and kind of working those conve- that convention circuit and publishers aren't going to do it for you anymore. No. Um, so, you know, you kind of have to have some social skills as a cartoonist yeah. in a way that you, I think maybe didn't earlier. I feel like you and I are both also involved in really friendly scenes Yeah. where it's kind yeah. of exciting to get out there. Yeah. I like my people. Our tribe is awesome. Our tribe is pretty awesome. <laughs> the Queers in Comics conference, the whole oh thing, made God. me want to cry a hundred times over. I was I was tearing up constantly. It was really it was bizarrely profound, and I didn't expect it to be so much. Um, but to get this kind of gathering of people, this intergenerational gathering of people yes. from like the the old mamas of like yeah. women's comics and tits yeah. and clits and like you know to, all the way through you know the kind of you know punk years to all the way to the kind of young you know genderqueer uh, web cartoonists like everybody kind of seeing this kind of evolution of material and how people have inspired each other uh, and the kind of pioneer 
years that made certain things possible for the next generation was so profound. And people that, you know, been working with for a decade or more and maybe not even meeting physically yet, um, I, I was constantly on the edge of tears. It was crazy. It was, it, and to also know that, you know, when you, you, you're always a little bit, you don't quite know how much good you're doing in the world or like if anybody's caring about your stories as a cartoonist you never quite know right no and then to be in a room where everybody cares and there's something very special too you don't need to have the base level conversations Mm. like there's not a panel that's just like gay people who also (laughs) do comics (laughs) like that's not a question it's like you get to get into the nitty-gritty of it you're like oh my god we all speak the same language yeah 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 so we can just say these words or these names of cartoonists and we all understand and have an appreciation but we don't need to defend anything yeah explain anything and, and and you also don't have the endless you know the, always the question that happens in every like comic-con queer panel is like someone you know raising their hand like you know so who's hotter like north star or thor do people like, do that oh, nobody yes. does that to me i think that lesbians are seem like nerds <laughs> somehow May, should i do a lesbian sex comic that is like yes. portland equivalent to yours so mine's like yes. you're, you're at a potluck and you're like can i use your nail clippers <laughs> <laughs> Cutting your nails to the back somewhere, getting ready. Wait, that's supposed to be hot. No, I don't know. Well, it's like my friends told me she used to tour with like lube and a glove in her pocket, so oh, she could just like fuck anyone time, anywhere. Anytime, yeah. right? It's like the equivalent of my friends who are always have emodium and like you know a douche. In yeah. their, <laughs> they're ready I to could clean out anytime. <laughs> they could clean out and be ready and like. 10 minutes yeah we don't do this but it'd be funny if lesbian just had mass and gill like in your <laughs> in your backpack <laughs> boom taken done i'm ready i'm fresh <laughs> yeah no it's uh um i was gonna say th- th- this is a kind of a funny story just a co- the combination of, of lesbian and and gay cultures um there's a guy uh, there's a woman named mr pam uh who's uh, uh who's a big name in gay male porn mm-hmm. and she's a dyke uh, who works in the game game of porn industry? So her parties are this kind of funny combination of like punk dykes and game of porn stars, oh, you know, which is just great. fascinating, right? I would love so, to go to that. Party. Yeah, they're, they're they're fabulous actually. So, <laughs> well, the one I went to had a big bouncy, uh, one of those big bouncy Good castle. Yeah, castle in the middle of her loft. It was kind of awesome. Oh. Um, so. As I said, I used to do porn. I was at this party, and um, I, you know, met up with another gay porn star, and he like stuck his hand down his my my pants and figured my butthole, which is oh. just kind of like hello. It, 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 I didn't even notice. Like I yeah. don't even think it's just like it's kind of a friendly hello. It's like a handshake, yeah. right? And uh, <laughs> and and then he goes off, and then my friend Amy, who's this you know this dyke that was at the party, she comes running up to me. She was like. You gay boys are so disgusting. I'm never coming to another gay boy party. I was like, what do you mean? Really? She said that I saw that guy come up to you and stick his hand on your, your, your pants and figure your butthole. And then he went over to the chips and ah, just went and oh, started yeah, eating the chips. And, she said, <laughs> and for the whole rest of the party, she was stationed next to the chips and she would warn every lesbian that came up to the chips. Really? Like, <laughs> well, I just want you to know. <laughs> There's gay boy butthole all over those chips. <laughs> the anal chips. Anal chips. Oh yeah, I probably God. also would be like, oh. yeah, it was, it was a little. It's a, I, I didn't, I didn't, it didn't even occur to me. I didn't think of it that way, but yeah. When I worked at the lesbian bookstore, I had a cut. You know, like those on the street interviews people do for newspapers. Yeah. Our gay newspaper. There was one clip, and there was a picture of a guy from Portland, and he said, "A blowjob is the gay man's handshake." Uh, right, and I right. had that cut out on my computer at work <laughs> when I was like ordering textbooks for the women's studies department, and I was like, "Oh, oh do you think that's true?" <laughs> Is, is touching is a, a butthole bragging? the gay man's handshake, or I, is a blowjob the gay man's handshake? You know, Don't I think... Speak, you can speak for all gay men. Yeah, <laughs> 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 I 
<laughs> for my people. Right, yeah. Um, I think a well, blowjob just requires a little bit more a, a little bit more uh, privacy and, and more time. And more time. I mean, it's a long handshake. Yeah, it's a long. It's a, <laughs> it's, it's a, a full I mean, sensual, like yeah, sensory. Yeah, handshake. and you know, it, you, we've all come across handshakes like that. You really want to <laughs> shake someone's hand, like it's really a get long in there. Army buddy hug. Yeah, exactly. So, but uh, you know, a quick little, you know, butthole fingering, like okay. you know, that's that's a kind of that's handshake on the on the on the you know on the on the passing. You know. I feel so practical. I'm like that seems way more time. Yes. Time, <laughs> time efficient. Time efficient. <laughs> like. The blowjob. It's, it's, like, it's a lot. There's a lot going on there, yeah. There's the questions. I mean, maybe it's not a question for having like spit or swallow or yeah. somewhere oh, yeah, else yeah, or where, yeah. where. And and also, so this is uh, this is we were talking before about the nature of erotic comics, and I just wrote this chapter for the Rutledge Companion to Comics about erotic comics, and I've just been thinking a lot about like what makes erotic comics, and um, uh, and one of the things that I realize is that there's a kind of utopianism to erotic comics that even if the things that they're writing about are incredibly dark and awful and evil or whatever, just as, you know, fun, crazy fantasies that are really dark, um, there's a utopian nature to erotica because you almost always assume that everything works properly. Mm-hmm. So, like, you don't, oh, yeah. you don't have, like, a hard-on that then flops over. You know, no. like, you don't have... Um, you know, the dirty butthole or like, you know, yeah. the, all buttholes are clean and spotless, you well, know, like also, imagine the amount of time you would have to draw for somebody to be like, Oh, my yeah. dick's not working. <laughs> right. And then like the close then, up of the other person's face and all the time that's going by. And then it becomes Chester Brown and not, uh, and not an actual erotic. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, but, but that's actually quite fascinating. And I think like, um, uh, you know, the, so people should be doing more comics about what sex actually work, looks like and works yeah. like, you know, as opposed to just this kind of uh, utopian vision of sex where all hard-ons stay hard and, yeah. and you know, there are no yeast, in, yeast infections and, like, yeah. you know, like, and, 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 you know, there's no pregnancy or whatever, you know, whatever yeah. it is, like, uh, whatever the sex acts might result in. Um, but uh, but it, then it stops being erotic, I suppose, yeah. at some point. Uh, when, when Dave and I were doing Hard to Swallow, there was this we were specifically going for this kind of in-between zone where, I mean, I think that sex and desire is one of the most important aspects of human existence, right? It's up there with birth and death. It's one of the great profundities of human experience. And why are we making such shitty art about something that's so important and profound in our lives? Um, But a lot of porn is just stupid and crappy, right? So, I mean, there's good porn out there. Don't get me wrong, but But like you have to dig for it. Is it all just because it's so taboo that there are fewer artists that are allowing themselves to focus on this? Absolutely. So actually I I tell my, every, every semester that I, that I teach a class with my, with, um, the MFA in comics and also my undergraduate comics classes at CCA, I always have a moment in which I bring in a stack of erotic comics and I put it down on the table and I say, you can look at these or not, but I'm going to make a pitch to you that you are working artists who are out there, you know, as artists trying to make the world a different place, right? A a better place, hopefully. And, and make yourself a better person in the process. Make erotica because this is one of the most important and profound aspects of human existence. And there's erotica out there. And especially if you're a woman, a person of color, a queer person, but really if you're any person, because we all have our individual sexual things, um, don't let someone else colonize your sexual space for you. You do it yourself. I'm going to make it erotic comic. <laughs> I have to do it under an assumed name so okay. I can still put out children's right. literature. <laughs> exactly. So, okay, if you see a sexy lesbian comic called by somebody named Sharpay Newman, see, it's me. <laughs> Sharpie, <laughs> that was that's always been like my pseudonym. It's not very sexy though. I have to think of another it's, one. It's not so Should sexy. It, but, but. <laughs> with the accent, with the accent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
<laughs> no, but I really like, and it's always the, always the students are ca- this kind of jaw dropping moment. They've never had a teacher say, "Go out and make porn," but like. I think it's incredibly, I mean, it's one of the great lessons of third-wave feminism, you know, that, that porn is not evil. It's just, the problem is who's been making it, like, yeah. and, and who's been, cons- you know, consuming it, allowed to consume it. So if we make feminist porn, if we make, you know, porn that is, you know, that properly represents people of color and queers and like, let's make good porn, you know, that's, yeah. that's challenging and, and, you know, kind of lives up to the, the subject matter. So, you know, with Hard to Swallow, like, Dave and I were always trying to push, you know, try to make challenging, interesting porn that would get you off, you could jerk off to, but also that would kind of challenge your mind in some way. So the best example for me was I did a story about, called Fluid, which was this woman who was, I met who was a, a femdike, um, busty femdike, who had used to write gay male porn reviews for gay.com under a male pseudonym. Mm-hmm. And she told me how she used to, uh, back in the day, she would strap down her tits, put on kind of boy drag, and go in the back of the powerhouse and suck guys off. No way. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? I was like, well, why? You're a lesbian. Like, why would you do that? She said, I don't know. There was just something about the kind of rawness of the sexuality back there that was just so intriguing to me. Um, Is it like Queer as Folk in the back where, like, Brian Kinney goes in the back and there's I've just... I've never seen You haven't seen it? I know, I know. I'm a well, I, all the, yeah, I don't know if... I don't know if any... I actually don't know any gay men that watch it. I only yeah. know lesbians that watch it. And we're like, ooh, this is what it's like to be, like, jerking off yeah, to yeah, be yeah. like, this is what it's like to be a gay man. Ugh. Yeah. I actually don't know <laughs> a single awesome. gay man who's ever seen that show. That's hilarious. <laughs> um, it, it is... I mean, there definitely are back rooms. I mean, you know, yeah. it, it depends on, you know... and. Unfortunately, there aren't so many, in, in, even in San Francisco anymore, but oh. in California, you really got to go to Europe for the good back rooms. But oh. that's, that's another podcast. What you know from okay. traveling. You know, that'd be <laughs> right, like exactly. the travel with Rick Steves. <laughs> oh, Justin. yeah. I Glory holes of the world. Glory, hole, glory holes of the world. I'm travel with Rick Steves. <laughs> um, but uh, so, so I, I made this comic about that experience, and I wanted it to still, because she got caught by this one guy. And he was so turned on by the fact that she was a woman, and that was so transgressive in the gay bar. So I was like, this is amazing yeah. story. So, But I still needed to make it hot. So it still needed to be, be a story that a uh, gay man could jerk off to, or bisexual man could jerk off to. but Or even a woman, right? It doesn't have to. Whoever, I, 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 I had plenty of women uh, fans of my gay, gay male. But no gender house. queers are allowed to everybody everybody jerk off and go right um so um but so but i so i had all this like dick in it and like hot cock sucking but i also wanted to make it something that would be challenging and kind of mess with people's minds in in fun ways so yeah so i think you can have erotica that does both so wait what did you do Uh, so i made this comic about that story and i think i think it achieved it Wow. Yeah, because I told the whole story of what she did and what, you know, her What did experience. he do after he found out uh, that she was a woman? Oh, he, he was into it uh. because it was so transgressive. So she blew him more yeah. voraciously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Everybody won. Wow. Everybody wins. If only I liked giving blowjobs more, I would do that. <laughs> <laughs> if only. <laughs> if only. Yeah, I think it's not that common. Wait, last thing. Important. Will you please dispel the myth that if you're a good artist, you just get to have unlimited checks come in for your art? Like oh, you just yeah, that like how happen. many side like has there ever been a time where you didn't have to have an additional job that supported your cartooning? No, no, no. I've never made a living as a cartoonist, and I and I do know so, any, but there's almost almost mm, nobody, almost nobody. But I mean, there are like I feel like there's m- some options now that are developing. Like I was just I brought Andy Warner into my class mm-hmm. to to do a, a guest lecture, and he's making a living making. Uh, journalism comics so they're like oh, that's a yeah. journalism comics is a thing now that's yeah. developed enough that you can actually 
make a living at it. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, but there, are, there are more like you know, I uh, some of the guest speakers that we brought in also at CCA. Like there's um, you know Paul Madonna who's like comes out of the fine art world. He's making comics, but he's He's doing like you know fine art prints with them mm-hmm. and you know murals, comics mm-hmm. murals and stuff like that. So he's still making comics, but he's making a living through this mm-hmm. kind of almost like gallery system. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So there's different there are models now, and then you know someone like Spike Trotman who we brought yes. in, who's she's making a living through you know develop, doing Kickstarter development. Yeah, like she does anthologies and does Kickstarters yeah. for anthologies, and hers are so specific. Yeah. And they're so specific they're, that they have an incredible audience. And the, all these niches that have not been targeted by the, the mainstream comics industry. Yeah. And are absolutely, and the people are hungry for this stuff. Yeah. You know, uh, women-focused erotica and yeah. all this other stuff. Um, I gotta get on that. Yeah. <laughs> right, Sharpe well, Newman. <laughs> Sharpe Newman. It's coming out now. It's gonna be harder, I think, to do like, <laughs> I do like my own figure modeling. Where oh, I'll set my phone yeah. timer up. And then I'll like run across the room and do the pose. Yeah, it's gonna be harder to have someone careful. over and be like, "Would you mind just?" <laughs> On the other hand, you could work that. I could. Could I've, I work that? I have to say, I've been that guy. Oh, you. The, the artist who's like, "Why don't you come over and model for me?" Yeah. Oh yeah. I've done that. Oh. <laughs> like I just put it out on Craigslist. Just come over. No, and I, I I pick someone at the gym. I'm like, hey, like, you come over. And, I don't know, I've, I've totally been that creepy. Oh artist. my god. I know them all. I mean, it's, oh, okay. I don't need to be. I feel like if I, as a lesbian, I get safer space out of Portland. It's maybe like. Nicole invited me over to model, but you know what she meant? Sexual modeling. <laughs> Sexual modeling. <laughs> you have to have a chaperone. Oh, yeah. But, you can, but your, sh- your chaperone can watch. <laughs> so they like to watch. <laughs> okay. This okay, is a good place to end right. it. Thank you. Bye. Thanks, Justin. <laughs> Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton with assistance by Ponyo Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.